Hey everyone, welcome back to the second season of The Table, Conversations on Youth Justice. I am your host, Hussein Hadri. Last season, we did a broad survey of MCYJ's work and the juvenile legal system in Michigan. This season, we're going to dive deeper into some of the topics we talked about and explore problems that might challenge your thinking. If you have anything you'd like us to cover, please feel free to write in. My contact info is in the show notes. But today, we're going to talk about fear. More often than we realize or than we hope, it is what drives our attitude toward the juvenile legal system, and that has harsh consequences, often catastrophic. We're going to talk about why that's a problem, what we can do to affect it, and what solutions have been proposed in our state. But first, we'll discuss some legislative updates since 2022. In the last episode of season one, we talked about the legislative recommendations of the governor's task force on juvenile justice. We'll briefly go over those recommendations today, but if you want to learn more, check out that episode wherever you find your podcasts. Enjoy today's show. This past November, Michigan voters re-elected Governor Whitmer, sending her back to Lansing for four years, this time with a Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate. But what does this mean for youth justice reform in Michigan? Well, it's almost entirely good news. Candidates across the state with platforms involving youth justice won their races, and we've re-elected a governor who has been a strong advocate for juvenile justice reform. When she first ran for the office in 2018, Governor Whitmer highlighted youth justice reform as a part of her platform. In 2019, she signed the Raise the Age bill package, which now requires youth under 18 in adult jails to be housed separately from adults. It prohibits the transportation of kids and adults in the same vehicle, requires parental notification at the time of a kid's arrest, And since this legislation went into effect, 17-year-olds are no longer automatically treated as adults for every offense. That's huge. MCYJ and our coalition partners led this effort, but this would not have been possible without Governor Whitmer's commitment to juvenile justice. So in 2021, she put together a juvenile justice task force, including 23 stakeholders and professionals with a variety of experiences and perspectives, members from all three branches of government, justice-impacted individuals, local juvenile court administrators and judges, county commissioners, and of course, our executive director, Jason Smith. The task force explored a variety of challenges, and they ultimately issued a number of recommendations. We'll get into a few of those today, but we got into them in detail in episode 8 of season 1. Here's a refresher. The task force recommended keeping kids under the age of 13 out of juvenile court altogether. They'd still get access to any resources they would have received had they gone through the system and been diverted. But the difference here is that they would never be under the jurisdiction of the juvenile court at all. That's a big deal. The task force also recommended a statewide juvenile public defense system, which is practically non-existent in Michigan right now, and to the extent that it does exist, it's dysfunctional. So the task force recommended expanding the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission to solve some of those problems. Next, it recommended increasing the reimbursement rate for community-based services in order to incentivize them over residential services. Essentially, it would make it cheaper for counties to provide community-based services and bring us a step closer to being in alignment with best practices. And the last one is this. 
the task force recommended eliminating most non-restitution fees and costs associated with the juvenile justice system. If enacted, this would bar juvenile courts from assessing any fines and fees except for restitution or anything related to the Crime Victims Fund. I'll link episode 8 in the show notes, so take a peek if you need a refresher on any of those recommendations. All of those are on the table to turn into legislation this year. These recommendations were already bipartisan, mostly unanimously approved by both Republicans and Democrats. We have momentum, and the work is not done. The fact that this new crop of legislators is sympathetic to our cause only makes our work as advocates more important. We have an opportunity to enact a youth justice agenda that would put Michigan at the cutting edge. It would allow us to set the standard for other states, that we have a system that works for kids and helps them rebuild from their worst moments. If we do our part, 2023 will be a big year for juvenile justice reform. We have to do the hard work of drafting the legislation and working with stakeholders and answering difficult questions, but at the end of all of that, we will have an opportunity to do something truly great for Michigan's kids. More after the break. The Michigan Center for Youth Justice is supported by grants and donations from supporters like you. Your generous contributions make projects like this podcast possible. From the team at MCYJ, thank you. Welcome back to The Table, Conversations on Youth Justice. In part one of our show, we talked about how the legislative landscape has changed. In part two, we're assessing the narrative about youth justice, why it's problematic, and why it's important to address it. I'm sure you've noticed there's a sense right now that youth crime is really high, and in some cases, it is particularly distressing. Take Grand Rapids, for example. This week, Grand Rapids Police Chief Eric Winstrom and Kent County Prosecutor Chris Becker are expected to meet to discuss the ongoing issues with car thefts and the group being called the Kia Boys. The meeting will involve multiple police chiefs from around the area. The main focus will be on the uptick in juvenile offenders and how to not lead them down a continued path of crime. Folks have attributed this to a number of causes, like lower sentences for crimes or their bills to eliminate cash bail the governor's quote-unquote soft on crime policies, or the effect of social media. There's myriad reasons that this could possibly be happening. And it's often led to resistance in communities, harsh consequences for the perpetrators of these crimes, retaliatory action to stop this. But we have to take a step back and realize that that's a reaction driven of fear. And in the end, it's clear that much of juvenile legal policy is driven by fear and not by reasonably calculated solutions that address the root causes of these problems. And it is a policy problem, yes, but it's also a problem of societal attitude and approach. We'll tackle policy first. There's this age-old argument that lower consequences for crimes will lead to more crimes. 
I'm not going to get into that too much here except to say this. There is little to no evidence that suggests that increasing the severity of punishment for a crime actually deters that crime. I'll link a report from the Department of Justice that explains that in a little more detail, but this argument falsely assumes that a child who is committing a particular offense is actually aware of the consequences for their actions. In fact, it falsely assumes that a child is even sitting down and thinking about what they're doing. We've talked about before how one of the primary causes of youth crime and offenses committed by youth is a lack of impulse control. Youth lack the ability physiologically to weigh the consequences of their actions the way that adults do. So inherently, we know that increasing sentences like this won't work and increasing consequences like this won't work. More fundamentally, we have trouble agreeing on the policy goal. Do we want to punish or deter or do we want to fix what's causing these problems? This is a question about our empathy and our approach. The bottom line is we're trying to address juvenile legal policy from a place of fear right now. And that can only lead us down the wrong path. We need to calculate our responses to these problems in a data-driven, consensus-driven way that gets us closer to the best practices we know from other similar communities across the country. Just as a couple of examples, we have two situations where an approach driven by fear has caused more problems than it's solved. We'll talk about the overcrowding at the Wayne County Juvenile Detention Facility and the way that we've addressed false threats on schools in the aftermath of the shooting in Oxford. Last August, the Detroit Free Press published a series of reports, which I'll link in the show notes, that described living conditions at the Wayne County Juvenile Detention Facility. These were all obvious violations of regulations from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Kids staying in their rooms for 24 hours a day, showering every third day. There was a staffer that said that kids were getting only two hours of recreation a day. Their rooms were being cleaned once a week, and there were tons of other problems. The facility applied for a variance with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, which would allow it to deviate from the rules for an approved period of time. And in their application, they said, quote, we strive to remain at a census of 80 youth to comfortably operate. However, census is on average between 120 to 140 and continues to rise daily as youth are arrested by law enforcement. The limited number of beds across the state prevent JDF youth from being placed in a reasonable time. Thus, youth continue to languish at the detention center pending secure placement. The variance was approved by DHHS several times. In November, youth were transferred to the Dickerson Jail located in Hamtramck. WXYZ reported that the Dickerson facility allows up to 60 youth to be housed in the same pod, while the other facility only allowed for there to be 20. So more staff would be able to be in the same area, share resources, and help each other as needed. But the real problem here is isolation. These children are being isolated in a way that's detrimental to their health and well-being. The kids are being housed in a facility with food slots and the doors, and the facility is only required to give them an hour a day outside their rooms. But what's this all driven by? The variant said, quote, the census at the facility continued to rise as youth were arrested by law enforcement. 
So in this situation, the quantity of arrests is the problem. In the next situation we're going to look at, the reason for the arrest is the problem. Following the shooting at Oxford High School in 2021, police departments reported receiving hundreds of copycat threats in the days after the shooting. These threats carry huge consequences for both the school and the kids calling in these prank threats. In the days following the shooting, 86 schools were closed because of these kinds of threats. Threats made by young teenagers on social media were, of course, being taken seriously by administrators and law enforcement. Attorney General Dana Nessel put out a statement saying, quote, Threats of violence rob students of valuable days of instruction as school administrators are forced to close buildings to keep kids safe. Whether these are real threats made by those intent on doing harm or pranks made by kids trying to get a day off, they are real crimes with real consequences. Communicating a threat of terrorism is a 20-year felony in Michigan. Calling in a bomb threat can result in a person being charged with a four-year felony. Malicious use of a telecommunications device carries up to a six-month jail term. Threatening to commit violence against a school employee or a student is a one-year misdemeanor. The old adage of kids will be kids does not apply when our schools, students, teachers, and staff are threatened. Since the shooting, dozens of kids have been arrested or charged. Among them, even a nine-year-old who had a list of kids kind of on a naughty or nice list with names on each side, but it was titled Alive or Dead. Kids 14, 15, or 16 charged with making a false threat of terrorism, and they're potentially facing 20 years in prison. And just this past April, a 10-year-old in Saginaw was charged with making a false threat of terrorism. A 10-year-old. Many of these cases, of course, did not lead to 20-year sentences. But it's important to recognize that the process of being arrested, being questioned by police officers, and facing the potential of this kind of sentence is traumatic. It's traumatic for adults, and it's even more traumatic for kids. Is this really the right way to address what has been described by the FBI and others as, quote, attention-seeking behavior? or behavior born of an inability to fully comprehend the consequences of one's actions. Of course, this is driven by the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain responsible for impulse control and judgment. At the age of 14 or 15, these kids have not yet developed the part of the brain that's responsible for controlling their impulses and stopping them from doing something like this. The point is, we take this approach out of fear for the worst. We choose to allow 14 and 15 year olds to be charged with 20 year felonies for posting something on social media. We use the legal system and arrests as a crutch to handle problems that seem too difficult for us to solve. Well, the task force recommendations we talked about earlier in this episode would address the problems we've just talked about in a consensus driven, data driven way. And those solutions are calculated to address the root causes rather than simply offer us a false sense of security. We talked last season about how juvenile detention and involvement in the judicial system altogether can result in harsh consequences for a person in an ongoing way, even if the child isn't eventually convicted of that crime. The task force's recommendations, if they become law, would limit some of those consequences and even the problems we've talked about today related to detention. For example, we could implement a tool that helps officers and staff 
assess the risk that a child poses, and effectively determine whether they should be taken to secure detention. In many cases, these kids could be under community supervision or detained at home. Kids who commit status offenses would be subject to the same assessment, and they could get access to collaborative community programs sooner rather than later, when alternatively, they might not have gotten around to getting them at all. Another one that we talked about earlier was that anyone under the age of 13 would not be subject to the juvenile court's jurisdiction, but through an alternative referral process, instead of an arrest, they could still get access to the same diversionary resources. So here we're solving the problem of the traumatic involvement in the judicial system, being arrested, being questioned. This way a child could get the same resources that they need for themselves and their families without going through that traumatic process. Look, all of this boils down to the way that we talk about juvenile legal policy in our communities, because that filters up into the way that our representatives talk to each other about juvenile legal policy, and that turns into the policies and practices that we see today. If we talk about juvenile legal policy from a place of fear, we're going to live in a world where our kids are overcrowded in juvenile detention facilities, or where it's possible to charge a 14-year-old with a 20-year felony for posting something online. If we choose to talk about this from a place of aspiration and empathy, that same 14-year-old would instead have the opportunity to work with people that could address the family situation or the insecurity or whatever it was that caused this behavior. We need to get to a place where we are not driven by fear and we instead turn to solutions we know that have worked in communities like ours. MCYJ is going to work tirelessly to turn those solutions into law this year, and we look forward to having you on board. And that's our show today. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to write in. For more information about the podcast and the show notes from this episode, check out our show page at miyouthjustice.org slash the table. This show is written and produced by me, Hussein Hadri. Our theme music is Wasted Education by Blue Topaz. This show is the copyrighted work of the Michigan Center for Youth Justice. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll talk to you next month.